0: Oh, good to see you all here this morning. You know, it's been so long since I saw you. It's been since last year. (laughs) Sorry. I know it's a dad joke, but I feel like I'm allowed to make those now. And to be honest, I was looking forward to telling that joke all year long. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, anyways. I wanna say happy new year. Um, You know, I'm thankful for the new year. I will say it has been a crazy year for me. You know, getting married, coming to Simcoe, buying our first house, coming to Evergreen, and then snapping my Achilles—that wasn't a highlight, but the rest were. It's—it's um, it's been a year, um, but I look forward to this year. I look forward to what God has to do in our midst, how God's going to challenge us, change us, transform us. Um, I'm not sure what your last year was like. Maybe it wasn't as crazy as mine. Maybe it was a fairly normal year. You know, kind of just day by day. Um, but regardless where we are today, whether last year was crazy, whether it was just a normal year, we're called to be grounded in Jesus, grounded in God. You know, I spoke last week on Psalms 36 and the idea of being grounded in God's covenantal love and how Jesus is really the manifestation of that covenantal love of God. Jesus is the center of our faith as a church. So this kind of wondering, what's going to go on for the new year? Well, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke. And I hope that as we spend time in the Gospel of Luke, that we would ground ourselves in Jesus. Now, there will be a few breaks here and there throughout the year, so it's not going to be the Gospel of Luke every Sunday. We will switch it up occasionally. But we will be spending most of the year in the Gospel of Luke. And if you're thinking, man, that sounds like a long time. When I was looking at the Gospel of Luke, if we were to cover every single passage and every single verse, it would probably take us about two and a half years. So I actually, I cut out a lot of, a lot of passages and tried to choose which ones I thought were important. Um, so, you know, if you're like, man, they didn't cover this passage, or they didn't talk about this verse, and you're wondering about it, please come talk to me or Pastor Tamil, and we'd love to, you know, discuss with you, maybe give you some resources that might help you. Because I know that sometimes there's passages that we read that are difficult for us to understand. We're kind of wondering, what does this mean for us? Now... When I say the word shopping, what comes to your mind? For some of you, I am sure you love shopping. You could spend ages in the store. You could you know, go to all the different shops. You could smell all the smells, taste all the tastes. You just, you love going shopping. Shopping is not just a task, it's a joyous event. It's, it's something you look forward to doing. And then for others, when I say the word shopping, there's this, uh, shopping, we have to go shopping. Um, You know, and when you go, you have your list and you have it all written out and you're like, I know exactly where that is. I know how long it's going to take me to get there. And you go there and you go and you grab it. And then you grab the item and you're coming back and you're like a running back. You're going to get to that line at the cashier and no one's going to stop you. Nothing's going to distract you. And, and now, obviously, there's people in the middle. Um, you know, some that, you know, like it, but, you know, they can have too much of it. Um, but I feel like it, when it comes to Jesus, sometimes we can become distracted shoppers. Um, and we can be distracted and enamored by many different things. And that's not necessarily always a bad thing. But sometimes we forget the most essential thing when we go shopping. Can you imagine if Yvette went me to go shopping? and I forgot to get the meat, the vegetables, fruits, and carbs. And so Yvette sends me to Superstore, and I go there, and when I go there, you know, I see this deal on cutlery, and I see this deal on shampoo, and all these different things. And so, I come back to her, and you say, well, like, you know, there's this deal on clothes, I bought you this new phone, you needed a new phone, you know, I need to take care of my long hair, you know, my dear, I'm getting split ends, I need to do something. <laughs> and so, suddenly, I've bought in all of these things that are actually not bad. I actually might need them, my family might need them. But at the end of the day, my family's going hungry. And healthy food, let's, let's say it, if you're hungry, healthy food is more important than clothes. If you're starving, you need to eat. And as a Christian and as an Anabaptist, it's essential that Jesus is at the center of our faith, the way we understand scripture, the way we interact with one another. If we miss Jesus in the midst of church, we've missed the most important thing. Churches can get passionate, enthusiastic about a lot of good things that are important and we should do. But sometimes it's easy in those other things to kind of miss Jesus. Jesus kind of gets pushed to the side, something we don't necessarily want to talk about. And when that happens, we begin to miss our grounding. We begin to get shaky. We miss our center Jesus. In John 14, 9, Philip has this conversation with Jesus and he wants to see God. And Jesus' response is said to Philip, says, have I been among you all this time? And you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And earlier in John chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 44 to 45, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees who sent me. Jesus is the visible incarnation of God, the Father, of Yahweh of the Old Testament. If we are to understand who God is and what he desires, we must ground ourselves in Jesus. And that's why I desire to go through the Gospel of Luke this year. I think it's very important. I believe that we cannot properly understand the rest of Scripture unless we view it through the lens of Jesus. Too often I've found in churches growing up, Protestants and evangelicals have often gone to Paul's writings like Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians to understand Jesus rather than going to the Gospels to understand Jesus first. In the early ancient church, we have records of their readings in churches and the Gospels played the largest role in studying and preaching, not Paul's writing. In the Western church, we've often reversed the priority, putting Paul's writing front and center instead of the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Did you realize that Paul only makes up 23% of the New Testament? Did you know the four Gospels themselves almost make up 50% of the New Testament at 47%, at least doubling Paul? Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, writes more than 28% of the New Testament, and it's hard to see this in our English translations, but in excellent Greek. I think if we, even, if we prioritize the Gospels and then went to Paul, our churches would look different. We'd be more focused on Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is very important. I'm not throwing out Paul. My wife could tell you I've spent many hours reading academic books on Paul and his letters. I believe Paul's letters are scripture. But Paul only made proper sense to me once I understood who Jesus was. Think about it. For Paul, Jesus was the center of his faith. And Jesus must be the center of ours. John Barclay, an eminent New Testament Bible scholar, says in his masterful work, Paul and the Gift regarding Jesus, Scripture, and Paul, this is what he says. Jesus is the key to both Scripture and history because all of reality takes its bearings from the unique and particular event of his death and resurrection. It is the good news of an event that Paul hears resonating backwards and forwards in history and backwards and forwards in the text. To invert a well-known phrase, Paul finds echoes of the gospel in the Scriptures of Israel. I would put forth that we can only understand Scripture properly through the lens and person of Jesus. We're called to be Jesus-saturated people, Jesus-filled people, people that they're embodiment of Jesus to our church, to our community, and to others. My hope and prayer is that we become more like Jesus, that we would know him as we work through the Gospel of Luke. I think one way we do this is we just soak ourselves in the Gospels. We're called to be Jesus-centered people, to be centered on him, This series of the Gospel of Luke will be called The Gospel of Luke, A Jesus-Centered Faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're good. Lord, I know this is a new series and there's going to be lots of information. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you just work in us. Open our hearts. I pray you would say what you want to say, Lord. Help us to become more like Jesus, to be made more in your image. Help us to see clearly, Lord. Remove sin Remove things that help us not to see you. Help us to know you, Jesus, to know your love for us and help us to love you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Help bring us to the Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before we begin digging into the text of Luke, it's important that we briefly cover some questions about it, uh, and I'll be honest, this sermon is going to be different than my normal sermons, because I'm going to be covering a lot of information, so um, it's just going to be a bit different, and I don't have time to go over everything I'm going to say like, thoroughly, so if you have questions or like, Stephen said that, I wonder about that, please come talk to me, because it's, it's going to be a little bit of a whirlwind, but I'm going to try to take my time and try to slow down to kind of um, explain things, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about dating, authorship, and genre. Now what I say kind of might remind you of fine print, but sometimes fine print is really important. For example, imagine if you're like sick and you've been sick for a long time and you want to get rid of what's bothering you. So you go see your doctor and they prescribe a drug for you. So you, you drive to the pharmacy, you order the drug, you get the pills and on the side of the drug it says, this drug may cause deaths, wild hallucinations, cancer, weight gain and rabies. You might have some very good questions for your doctor, and be like, well, are you trying to kill me? What's, what's with this drug? And now let's say chances of these side effects are, are less than 1%, and this drug will rapidly improve your health. So you may take it now with the information you have, but you probably would have felt a lot more informed if your doctor would have told you there are some risks to this medicine, especially if one is deaf. So <laughs> I just want to address these questions of dating authorship and genre. Um, So the first thing I want to kind of, I need to state from the beginning of this section is that Luke and the book of Acts are actually kind of seen as two books that go together. Uh, This is something that's widely recognized by all scholars, that these books have a single author. They're kind of, they're meant to be kind of in a book series if you were to think about it that way. And uh, there's basically unanimous agreement that Luke and Acts are two books that go together. And now I kind of, I want to talk about dating. There are certain scholars that propose that Luke and Acts was written in the late to mid 2nd century, so 150 to 200 AD. Usually scholars who hold to this late date believe the 2nd century church made up of a version of Jesus that suited their beliefs and thoughts. Essentially these scholars propose that these people created an image of Jesus that isn't true, so that we can't trust the gospel of Luke. And if this dating is correct, then Luke could not have written it because he would have been dead by this time. And those scholars say, we can't trust it. And maybe this feels a bit dull to you talking about dating and authorship, but I think it's important because sometimes people are given one-sided information that can make them doubt the authenticity of the Gospels. Now, what I have to say is maybe not as much important, but I and many scholars, much more intelligent than I am, with much more schooling than I have, believe Luke was written sometime between 60 to 80 AD, within a generation of Jesus' life. I would argue, Luke does give us an accurate portrayal of who Jesus is. He gives us an authentic picture of Jesus, of who he was, what he came to do, because he has access to the apostles, to first-hand sources. And there's strong reasons to believe Luke was written within a generation of Jesus, between 60 to 80 AD. First, we have allusions from a book called First Clement from that time period, which means that if he is making an allusion to Luke, that the book at oldest is mid-90s AD. Second, If Acts was written at a later date, we'd expect expect Paul's writings throughout the book of Acts, because the church would have had access to those writings. And so when they would have wrote this book in the second century, they would have most likely referenced his writings. But what do we see instead? There's no allusions to Paul's writings in the book of Acts. Third, the Greek and the writing conventions, so if you think about English, think of the grammar, syntax, sentence structure of Luke, all match the first century. Fourth, it would be strange that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., you may not be aware of this, but Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, was not mentioned, which occurred in the first century. This was a major event that changed how Jews and Gentiles related with one another, especially how Jews related with Christians. It created a lot of discord, a lot of tension. And so it would be kind of strange because in the book of Acts, we actually see a very Jewish church bringing in Gentiles and kind of going through that process of what that looks like. The second thing I wanna talk about is authorship. I believe the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke. And you're wondering like, well, why, why would I think this? Well, the oldest church canon we have, which is like a, a book of lists of the, it's like a list of books of the Bible. Sorry, tongue-tied there. It mentions Luke as the author. And this is from 170 AD. We also, the oldest manuscripts we have of Mark come for attribute Luke as the author. And third, church history, you'll find that there's no disagreement from the church fathers that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And don't take it from me. I'm just someone who's a pastor with a master's degree. But some of the most eminent New Testament scholar alive, N.T. Wright, also holds to an early date for the Gospel of Luke. And it's not just Wright. There's big giants such as Darrell Bach, Craig Keener, Ben Wetherington, John Barclay, and more, hold to an early view of the Gospels. And you're wondering, well, maybe these are just because these are Christian men. But these are men that are also recognized as eminent in their field by non-Christians in their study of field. So who is this Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke? What do we know about him? Well, it's thought that Luke was a Gentile, though there are some that think he's Jewish. We don't know for sure. Luke was a companion of Paul with him through some of his missionary journeys. We see this in Acts and Paul's writing as they mention him. And third, he was a physician, a medical doctor, and a highly skilled writer according to church history. He was never married, and he eventually was martyred for his faith. Finally, the last kind of bit is the genre of Luke is what we would call, it uh, would be like an ancient Roman biography called a bios. And these Roman biographies, these documents, they would write about someone's life, they would detail about the events, the things they did, the things that kind of were important about their life. But Luke is also unique. Luke differs from these roman biographies he also has jewishness throughout his book he pulls from the greek septuagint which is the greek old testament and these have like the fulfillment of prophecies in them and i think one thing i want to address is that luke is not writing a modern biography the ancient world doesn't have the same values as we have how we would write a biography today they don't value chronology in the same way. They would more value theology and teachings. And so certain topics, uh, Luke uses these and brings them together to kind of tell a story and to teach us. And so we have to be careful we don't take our 21st century minds and kind of put them onto the 1st century text because that's just not how it works. If we interpret Luke correctly, we have to be willing to ask, how would ancient people think about this? What would, how would they read this? Just a note on this. Nicholas Perrin, a scholar, writes... In his commentary, modern Western readers tend to associate serious history with a dispassionate and objective recounting of events. Good historians, we tell ourselves, at least try not to let on that they have a particular agenda. Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to ancient historiography. For ancient historians, it was exactly their commitment to the facts and interpretation that qualified them to speak authoritatively. That's why Luke never claims to be objective either here or at any other point in his two-volume set. He is unapologetically committed to the facts, but he's also motivated by his theological interests. Luke, sorry, like those before him, who had also undertaken to set down an orderly account, namely Matthew and Mark, Luke wants to impress upon his readers the wonders of the earthly and risen Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the necessity of placing faith in him. Now, maybe you don't really care about authorship, dating, and genre. I can understand... But regardless of where you stand on these issues, the most important question, more important than any of these questions, is if we believe the Gospel of Luke is scripture. Did God guide Luke or whoever wrote this book for the church? And maybe you're asking, well, that's redundant, Stephen. We're all in church today, so this is what we believe. But I think it's important we ask this, do we really believe that this is scripture? And if it is so, if the Gospel of Luke is scripture and trustworthy on the person of Jesus, then I think we are left with C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma regarding Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. If the gospel of Luke is trustworthy, which I believe it is, then the life of Jesus demands a response. Will he become the center of our life? Or do we prefer Jesus that makes no demands of us? Do we just prefer the myth of Jesus? If the gospel of Luke is trustworthy, how will we respond? How many of you have ever gotten a letter from the CRA? I'm sure probably all of you do, and that's not a fun experience. Oh, let me tell you, I do not enjoy letters from the CRA. Even if they tell me how much money I'm getting back, I always get nervous, and it's like, you have a letter from the CRA, and I'm like, oh lovely, I gotta go look at this letter. And the fact is the CRA, you know, often sends letters, but we should always read them. Why? Because if we do not, and the CRA says, you need to respond by this amount of date, or you have this much owing, if we don't, we could be in serious trouble. We need to respond to the CRA. Not sure about you, but one time I had a letter from the CRA where I had to prove my charitable giving over the last five years. The problem was I did not keep my files for the last five years when that came. And it was a royal pain in the butt because for the five years, I had moved every single year at least once, sometimes twice. So now I have to track down all these files from all these churches and eventually I figured it out. But if I didn't respond, you can guarantee you that I would owe them a lot of tax if I didn't respond to them. Now this is kind of a weird metaphor, but to me the Gospel of Luke is kind of like the CRA. It has something to tell us. And we have a choice whether we respond to it, whether or not we think it's trustworthy. So if it is trustworthy, what does it teach? What does it say about the person of Jesus? What challenges does it give us? I want to go over some broad themes before we dig into the Gospel of Luke. Salvation is the main theme of Luke. Jesus is seen as the Savior of the world. He's the one who embodies salvation and makes salvation available to all. Not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. Not for the rich, not just for the rich and powerful, but for the weak and poor. This salvation includes salvation from sickness, Satan, and death. Another major theme in the Gospel of Luke is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills people, anoints them to do tasks for the kingdom of God. He comes upon them, comes upon Jesus, and it comes upon us for the power for the church to be his representatives. Another theme is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the eternal reign of Christ here on earth. The kingdom of God is open to all. None are barred if they're willing to follow Jesus. Luke takes special interest on those in the margins, including those who would normally be on the outside of society, those who would be seen as lesser. He takes interest in women, poor, the hungry, the lowly, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the lepers, the sick, the tax collectors, the the Romans, and the sinners. He invites them to partake of the kingdom of God, to be equal followers at the table. The kingdom of God is open to all. Finally, the last theme that I want to hit on is discipleship. Following Jesus is seen as something that is extremely costly. It requires being being willing to lay down our lives to follow him. It's not easy. It's not always fun. Jesus doesn't desire disciples that are only 50% 50% in. Now, I know I went through a whirlwind of information. So please, if like, you want this on paper or you want to have questions, please come talk to me. But now I want us to dig in to the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to Luke 1, 1-4. Luke 1, 1-4. And we're just going to read the first four verses here of Luke, and, and I'm just going to talk about them a bit here. Luke 1, 1-4. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed." So here Luke in this kind of brief introduction He's talking to Theophilus and saying, he's written, he's researched this gospel, that Theophilus can trust it, that it's trustworthy. And this is what we would call a preface. This is how actually a lot of other Greek writers wrote in their biographies with a preface. And so what does Theophilus need to know? Luke wants him to trust his writings. He wants to demonstrate that this is a faithful account of the life of Jesus. So how does Luke actually do this? First, Luke recognizes that there are those who have gone before him. There are those who have written the Gospels. It is thought that Luke takes a lot from Mark and Matthew, and Luke uses both these texts to compile the Gospel of Luke, with also other sources. Now, there's an interesting note in verse 2. He writes, The original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to. The original eyewitnesses are thought to be most likely the apostles and the term servants most likely references other direct followers of Jesus. And this word for handed on in the Greek is called paradoson, and it actually is not just a simple passing on. It's not like, you know, when you're at the dinner table and someone says, pass me the potatoes you know, and you go and pass them the potatoes. This is, not, this is not the word that they would use. This word here is actually used for the official transmission of official traditions. So this was seen as like a a sacred passing on. So this is something that Luke would have taken very solemnly to do with a sense of uh, responsibility. Luke is not just recreating events as he wants to. He's actually going back. He's accessing written sources and he's accessing firsthand sources, first compilation of the story of Jesus. This is a sacred task that Luke takes with utter responsibility. Verse 3. Luke lets Theophilus know that he's taken pains to make his work authentic and accurate. He says he has carefully investigated from the very first and in an orderly sequence. Luke is saying, Theophilus, you can trust this as trustworthy. Now, who is this Theophilus fellow he writes to? It's the only time we actually hear of Theophilus. Now, some of suggested that his name, Theophilus, means loved one, or God-lover, because his name comes from the word Theo and Philae, which is, Theos is God and Philae is love. Now, this this is possible, but in part because this preface is like other ancient Greek prefaces, it's thought that this is most likely a real person. The fact that it follows other historical documents would suggest that this Theophilus is most likely a real person. And part of this reason is, Theophilus is actually quite a common name, And he also has the honorific attached to his name, Most Excellent, which most likely means someone of wealth and influence and power. Worship team, you can come up. Um, There's a good chance, in fact, that Theophilus actually funded the writing of the Gospel of Luke. We don't know this for certain, but this is because in other ancient works, such as Josephus to Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus actually commissioned Josephus to write his work. And we also have writings from Philo to Gaius, in which Gaius also funds Philo. This last verse here in this passage, so you may know the certainty of things about which you have been instructed. The thing is, if we're going to be Jesus-centered people, to have a Jesus-centered faith, we have to ask the question, who is Jesus? We have this fundamental problem, a tendency to make Jesus into our own image. I'll be honest, usually the way I see Jesus, Jesus has the same opinions as me. He has the same paradigms as me. He has the same thoughts as me, the same politics as me. But when we come to the Gospels, we have to say, who is Jesus really and what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us as a church? Luke offers us a true image of Jesus. So how will we react? It's easy to pick and choose what we want from the Gospels, but are we willing to soak ourselves in all of the gospel and listen to who Jesus is? My hope is that as we spend time in the Gospel of Luke that we would be confronted, challenged, transformed, and encouraged by the person of Jesus. The most important question, will we evergreen be Jesus-centered people with a Jesus-centered faith? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. But I know there's a lot of information I went through, a lot of details and facts. Lord, I pray that... Uh, At the end of the day, that we would trust that this is a trustworthy account of who you are, Lord. And Lord, more important than this, Lord, is that we would taste and see that you are good and that you are who you say you are, that we can experience you, that we can know you. I thank you for your goodness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.